Well, I know not much is happening here in our state, but indeed elections are coming up this week across our nation. And in some of those places, these are, these are really big elections. And elections remind us that nobody likes to be on the losing side. Nobody likes to lose an election. Nobody likes to be a part of, really likes to be a part of the party that loses an election. I, I think we, we learn this really early as human beings. Over on the school playground, the, the, the kickball field, the, the football field, we don't like to be on the losing side. I, I can remember as a, as a middle school student, you know, standing there as the recess teams were being sorted out and, you know, there are two captains and they're choosing, and I was rarely the captain, but uh, two captains and, and they're choosing their sides and you really quickly figure out before the game is even going to be played, who's going to win. You know, it's, it's, it, gets, it gets obvious really fast and you just, you're hoping, I want to get picked on that side. That's, that's the team that's clearly going to win. We don't like to be on the losing side. We, we want to be winners. We want to associate with winners. That's, that's, that's true at church. It, it's true at work. It's true with our friends. You know, on the, on the playground, the consequence of being on the weaker side is, is nothing greater than the humiliation of losing. But when you grow up, the stakes get higher, don't they? Now it's not a kickball game or, or flag football, but it's success in life, in love, in career that's on the line. And so the threat of being a loser, the, the threat of being perceived as a loser, is honestly enough to make many of us want to change sides in life. To abandon former loyalties... And to take up new loyalties, uh, loyalties to the side that looks like it's going to win, e- even if that means abandoning loyalties to, to spouse, to employer, maybe even to God. We've been considering the book of Second Samuel uh, all fall. It's the story of the rise and the fall and the return of Israel's greatest king, King David. And this morning we come to the absolute lowest point in David's reign. It doesn't get any worse than what we're going to look at this morning. To all appearances, David is a loser. He's he's a king without a country, a king without a throne. And it's not at all surprising as we walk through our text this morning, we're going to see people changing sides. What is surprising, I think, is the way God responds to all of this, what what God thinks of this. Because as it turns out, it's not through strength, it's, it's not through wisdom, it's not through popularity that God wins, that, that God accomplishes his purposes. It is instead through weakness. And what that means is how we respond to the the humiliation, the weakness of God's anointed servant very much determines 
how God responds to us. So turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, that's found on page 494. 494. We're going to be looking at four chapters this morning, 15 through 18, which means I'm not going to be reading all of it. But I would encourage you to keep your your own Bible open because I'm going to be referring to different sections throughout and and reading certain sections. And of course, today will be is is a really good reminder of why it's, it's especially useful to read the passage before you come on Sunday morning. That's why we provide those sermon cards. So, you know, in advance what's going to what's going to be read. Uh, and so if you're, if you're caught out this week, you can, you know, uh, make, make amends next week and, and be prepared next week. We, we really want that to serve you. We're going to look at these four, four chapters. And if I could sum up the point of our passage in a single sentence, it would be this. Here's the single sentence summary of 2 Samuel 15 to 18. Through his humiliation, the Lord vindicates his anointed king, in order to bring rebellion to an end. Through his humiliation, not despite his humiliation, through his humiliation, the Lord vindicates his anointed, his anointed king, in order to bring rebellion to an end. That, I think, is the point. I want want you to see that And I think we see it as as the passage breaks down into into three pretty clear sections that that really form the outline of the sermon. First, from the beginning of chapter 15 to the middle of chapter 16, chapter 16, verse verse 14. In that section, we see the king's exile, the king's exile. Then from the middle of chapter 16, beginning there with chapter 16, verse 15, all the way to the end of chapter 17, we see the fool's wisdom. The fool's wisdom. And then third, uh, beginning at, at, the, at the start of chapter 18 and going through verse 8 of chapter 19, we see the rebel's end. The rebel's end. And for those of you that are taking notes, rebels is plural, not singular. All right, so let's see how this plays out. First, the king's exile. Look at, at chapter 15, verse 1. Chapter 15, verse 1. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from? He would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land. Then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that he gets justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 
200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They'd been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, to come from Gila, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. Our passage opens with an empty city gate and an ambitious young prince who'd like nothing more than to fill it. The city gate was the place of justice and government administration in the ancient Near East. David is not there, but Absalom is. And as we see, Absalom's a smooth operator. He looks the part and he plays the part well. And after four years of kind of priming the prompt, priming the pump, when the time is ripe, he puts his plan into action. And, and honestly, as, as we see there, it, it wasn't hard. Absalom, you see, had stolen the hearts of the men of Israel. Now, that, that phrase in Hebrew does not mean that he had stolen their affections. It means that he had stolen their minds. He had deceived them through his actions into thinking that he really was the better choice for king. The previous chapters told us how, how handsome he is, how, how tall and dashing, not a single blemish, and the man had great hair. I, I mean, he was a made-for-TV king before there was TV, straight out of central casting. Of course, not everyone's deceived. Some chose willingly to change sides, to cast their lot with what looks like is going to be the winning side, Bathsheba's grandfather, Ahithophel, apparently had his own motivations for seeing David deposed. Well, David's response is dramatic. Look there in verse 13. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin upon us and put the city to the sword. David immediately knew what was going on. David knew that he'd already lost before the first shot was fired. And so there is a great reversal. Absalom, who should have remained in exile, assumes the throne. And David, the rightful king, is forced to flee into exile. Now, David's exile is clearly punishment for his own sin. As, as Nathan's prophecy continues to work itself out, Nathan had said that, that God would raise up somebody from within his own household to bring calamity and trouble upon him. And here it is. David knows that. But David doesn't despair. David knows that at this moment, yeah, he's lost the throne. He, he, he must flee into exile. But David doesn't believe that he's lost God. David knows that God has enrolled him in the school of suffering, in the school of humiliation. David has signed up for graduate courses in the school of the Lord. Look at, look at verse 23. The, the, the situation is dire. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. 
The king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on toward the desert. Zadok was there too and all the Levites who were with him were carrying the ark of the covenant of God. They set down the ark of God and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. You see, many years before, Saul had tried to use the ark of the Lord as a, as a guarantee for, for victory. I think David remembers that at this moment. God will not be used. God, God is not a, a good luck charm for our lives who, who helps us get what we want. David understands that. And so he sends the priest back. He sends the Ark of the Covenant back to where it belongs. And instead of trying to, to use God to, to get himself out of trouble, David submits himself to God. He had learned that that was really his only option. Have you learned that? You see, God uses suffering and humiliation to teach his servants to trust him. To demonstrate just how trustworthy he is. You know, in many ways, David's exile here presages Judah's exile. Where the whole nation would learn this very same lesson someday. In fact, David's exile here foreshadows the humiliation of Christ Jesus himself. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus would walk this exact same road, this exact same route from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives that David has just walked. And, and quite near the spot where David learns of Ahithophel's betrayal, Judas would do something far worse. And yet, how did, how did Jesus respond there in the Garden of Gethsemane? He submitted himself to the Lord and to his will. As the book of Hebrews declares, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus himself like his great-grandfather David, learned submission through the humiliation of suffering. Jesus learned it in the humiliation of the incarnation. He learned it in the suffering of the cross. And through that, he brought glory to God. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know the suffering that you're experiencing right now. I, I don't know the, the humiliation that you feel. But I, but I do know this. In your suffering, in your trials, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have not lost God. The question to ask is not, why am I suffering this way? The question to ask is not, how can I get out of the suffering that I'm in? The question to ask 
is what is God trying to teach me in this suffering? What are the lessons that God has for me in the school of the Lord? Now, the focus of this section is really not just David's suffering. It's as much how other people respond to his suffering. Here, here I think, is the main point of this section, and that is if you will not own the king in his humiliation, he will not own you in his glory. If you will not own the king in his humiliation, he will not own you in his glory. We see that as David makes this journey into exile on the road, on this weary journey filled with tears for David, he meets a bunch of people. He's on his way from Jerusalem to the fords of the Jordan. And the author gives us all of these different interactions with people as he meets them along the way. Some of them are friends and some of them are enemies. And in each case, their hearts are tested and their hearts are revealed. Now, the tests are not the same. Let's start with the friends. Ittai, a Philistine, is offered the chance to freely return to Jerusalem and serve Absalom. No questions asked, no blame attached. After all, David says he's a foreigner. He's lately come into David's service Why should he suffer along with David? But like Ruth before him, Ittai, the foreigner, the Philistine, swears allegiance to the true king in his suffering. Look at verse 21. Here's here's Ittai's response. Ittai replied to the king, as surely as the Lord lives and as my Lord, the king lives, wherever my Lord, the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. And so Ittai follows David into exile. And Ittai will be asked to to fight the battle. He will will lead one of the groups on the very front lines of the battle with Absalom a little bit later. Now, in contrast, Hushai, the archite, the the king's longtime close counselor, Hushai also meets David here on the road in, in chapter 15. And Hushai is refused. Hushai is not allowed to come with David. Instead, he's he's sent back to Jerusalem. His his mission is to be a spy along with the priests and do what he can to support David's cause. We see that there at the end of chapter 15. Friends, the, the call of discipleship does not always look the same. Some are called to the front lines of the battle, as Ittai was. I, I think in in kind of maybe common imagery that, that some of you would share. I, I think of people that are, that are called to the mission field to, to, to leave everything behind uh, and, and to head out to the mission field. I think of our young people that are thinking of going into, the, into cross-cultural missions. I think of, I think of young men who, who could go out and have actually promising, lucrative careers that would give them very comfortable lives in this world who instead give that up and instead go into the ministry to pastor local churches who will not always appreciate their pastoring and will not pay them very well for their pastoring. But they give that up. There are people like Ittai who are called to, to, to give up much to serve the Lord. But others, you see, are sent back into the world like Hushai. I think of most of you. 
working secular jobs, taking care of your your kids at home, you you know, just just dealing with and engaged with the workaday world of life. Now, in some ways, that, that world can be comfortable. But you need to understand that if that's you, Jesus didn't send you back into that world for your comfort. He sent you there like Hushai to work for his cause and his lordship in a hostile environment. Just as much as those who have been called to the mission field or called into full-time vocational ministry, friend, Jesus, if you're his follower, Jesus has called you to risk your life, to risk your reputation, to risk your comfort for him where you are. And it's a big ask because the world does not yet see the king in all of his glory. These days, taking Jesus' side, whether that means taking his side at work or at school or even at home or in the neighborhood, taking Jesus' side feels like taking the losing side. Because that's what Jesus looks like to the world. Friends, here's where true discipleship, true faith is displayed. It'll be very easy to declare for Jesus on the last day when he shows up in all of his glory. But friends, if we have not already declared for Jesus now in his humility and lived it out, then that day will be too late. Now, David is also met by his enemies. Now, sometimes those enemies are obvious and sometimes they're not. The first enemy that he meets is Ziba there at the start of chapter 16. You remember Ziba. Ziba is the guy who's supposed to be taking care of Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son. Ziba meets David right there on the Mount of Olives, uh, really on the other side of the Mount of Olives. He's waiting with donkeys and and fresh food and and wine to, to, to refresh everyone. But Ziba is not there. Because he's loyal to David. Ziba's there because Ziba's loyal to Ziba. And Ziba sees his chance. Look there in chapter 16, verse 3. The king asked, Where is your master's grandson? Ziba said to him, He's staying in Jerusalem because he thinks today the house of Israel will give me back my grandfather's kingdom. Then the king said to Ziba, All that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. I humbly bow, Ziba said. May I find favor in your eyes, my lord the king. Now, we don't get to hear Mephibosheth's defense until chapter 19. We'll we'll hear that in, in a few weeks. But I actually don't think we need to hear Mephibosheth's defense in order to see that Ziba is lying through his teeth. You see, Ziba doesn't join David in his exile. Ziba doesn't ask to join David in his exile, and Ziba risks nothing. He was on the far side of the Mount of Olives. Absalom couldn't see what was going on from Jerusalem. Totally hidden, totally secret, totally deniable later if need be. What does Ziba do after the king accepts his gift? Well, he hurries back to his new farm. 
and begins to enjoy his new farm right away. You see, Ziba got what he wanted. And all for the price of a few donkeys and some bread and wine. I wonder if some of us are here this morning because we're trying to flatter Jesus. Pretending to be his friend. Flattering the true king with with our service, with with our sacrifices. but, But doing it just because we want what Jesus can give us. How would you know if that's you? Well, ask yourself, would you be happy in heaven even if Jesus wasn't there? If you found out tomorrow that there was another way to heaven other than Jesus, would you be just as happy to take that road? David may not have been able to read Ziva's heart, but Jesus does. And what terrible words it would be to hear on that last day. Depart from me. I never knew you. You See, Jesus does not ask for our flattery. He does not ask for our service. He asks for our lives. Then there's Shimei. Look there at verse 5 in chapter 16. As King David approached Bahurim. A man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son, Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a man of blood. Shimei is a relative of Saul's and he has been waiting for this day. This is payback day. Of course, Shimei is partly right. And David knows it. David is being punished for his sin. And and that's why I think David will not allow his, his army, his generals, to do anything against Shimei. But though he is partly right, Shimei is mostly wrong. It's not for imagined crimes against the house of Saul that that David is being punished, but but for real crimes against Bathsheba and Uriah. More, More importantly, David is not under God's curse. David is being punished. David is being chastised by the Lord. But he is not being cursed. The promise of 2 Samuel 7 still stands. You know, the the mistake that Shimei makes about David here, I think, is the same mistake that people have always made about Jesus. In his own days, the Jews rejected Jesus because he didn't look like the Messiah that they expected or that they wanted. In fact, he looked like a man under God's curse. And I, I think even today, too many people still make that same mistake. Surely a suffering savior is not the team captain we need. And yet that's who Jesus is. And if we don't recognize him now, he will not recognize us later. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 8, verse 38, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of him 
when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels. Friend, what are you ashamed about when it comes to Jesus? Are, are, are you ashamed of his claims to exclusivity? Are, are, are you ashamed of his holiness and his call to holiness? Which puts us very much out of step with the anything goes culture we live in. Are you ashamed of his death and what that says about you? Friends, do not do not make the mistake of thinking that suffering equals losing. It's simply not true. And and understand that there is no shame that you feel now concerning Jesus that you will feel ashamed of later. No, no, you will never, ever, ever feel ashamed for the shame that you bear now in Jesus Christ. Like David, Jesus suffered exile from his throne. Like David, it appeared that he was under God's curse. But like David, Jesus Christ is God's anointed. And in the shame and in the humiliation and in the suffering, it turns out everything was going exactly according to God's plan. That's the second thing that we need to see in this passage. The fool's wisdom. The fool's wisdom. The the opening scene ends with David at the fords of the Jordan River. But in in chapter 16, verse 15, the the clock rewinds. The the camera pans back to Jerusalem. Hushai has just arrived. And so has Absalom. Now, from the middle of chapter 16 to the end of chapter 17, the fate of David hangs in the balance. Look at chapter 15, verse 31. Chapter 15, verse 31. This is what sets up everything that follows. Now, David had been told Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, O Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Now, the, the very next thing that happens after David prays this prayer is Hushai shows up. We already know now David has sent Hushai back to try to frustrate the counsel of Ahithophel. The, the real question all the way through from the middle of 16 to the end of 17 is will Absalom listen to Ahithophel or to Hushai? Now to begin with, Absalom listens to Ahithophel. The very first advice that, that Ahithophel gives him right there at the end of, of chapter 16 is to, to actually sleep with all of his father's wives that he's left behind to take care of the palace. It's, it's shocking to us, shocking advice. It's, a, it's brilliant advice, though. It, it, it's, a, it's a burn the bridges, nail the flag to the mast kind of advice. 
when, when Absalom does this, everyone will know that Absalom is absolutely committed to the rebellion. He's not going to turn back. He can't turn back. He's burned all of his bridges. There'll be no suing for peace later on for Absalom having done this. And so, so people can be confident. We can throw our lot in with him. He won't leave us hanging. It's brilliant advice. But it's also incredibly wicked advice. And it earns God's curse. Now, the next question that comes up after strengthening his hand, his rebellion, is what do we do about David? Once again, Ahithophel gives excellent advice. Basically, Ahithophel says, strike while the iron is hot. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. Ahithophel said to Absalom, I would choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David. I would attack him while he is weary and weak. I would strike him with terror, and then all the people with him will flee. I would strike down only the king. And bring all the people back to you. The death of the man you seek will mean the return of all. All the people will be unharmed. This plan seemed good to Absalom and to all the elders of Israel. In fact, if Absalom listens to his advisor at this moment, David is lost. David at this moment in the narrative is is literally just a few miles away from Jerusalem. All that stands between David and Absalom is the Mount of Olives. And Absalom and his men could be on David in about an hour. But then, Absalom asks for Hushai's thoughts. And David's friend speaks up. This is his shining moment. His advice? Better safe than sorry. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. This is Hushai speaking. So I advise you, let all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, be gathered to you, with you yourself leading them into battle. Then we will attack him wherever he may be found, and we will fall on him as dew settles on the ground. Neither he nor any of his men will be left alive. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city. And we will drag it down to the valley until not even a piece of it can be found. See what Hushai is doing here. He's arguing for delay. Dan is up in the north of the country. Beersheba is down at the far south of the country. It's going to take time to gather All of these troops. But in fact, as far as Absalom is concerned, what he's arguing for is is careful preparation. For for overwhelming force, you know, shock and awe. And most importantly, he's arguing for maximum glory for Absalom. You yourself lead them into battle. Everyone will know what a great king you are. In fact, it's, it's terrible advice. And that's what makes it so brilliant. David has prayed that God would turn Ahithophel's wisdom to foolishness. And God answers David's prayer, not by making Ahithophel foolish, but by making Absalom a fool. Verse 14. Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the Archite is better than that of Ahithophel. 
Like a fool, Absalom is swayed by thoughts of glory. Like a fool, Absalom is concerned with what the people are going to think of him. And so in the end, like a fool, he rejects wisdom and listens to folly. And the reason he does so is God. Verse 14. I'm sorry, uh, the, the end of verse 14. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. In his wisdom, God decided to frustrate the wisdom of the wise in order to bring judgment on those who are wise in their own eyes. The narrator leaves us without a shadow of a doubt here. From the start, this was God's plan. To to rescue David from Absalom's hand, to vindicate his anointed king against the assault of every proud rebel. Friends, this is God. This is the way God works. God delights to glorify himself by turning worldly wisdom upside down. And nowhere is that seen more clearly than in the gospel. For God's plan all along was that through the weakness of Jesus' humanity, through the apparent defeat of the crucifixion, death and Satan would be destroyed. And sin and rebellion would be conquered. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased to the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Friends, what wisdom has your ear today? Absalom despised his father's weakness and pursued the path of glory instead. What a terrible thing to be given over by God to the foolishness of our own wisdom. Friend, pray that God does not do that to you. Ask that he gives you ears to hear true wisdom. Wisdom that does not seek its own glory, but wisdom that finds true glory in the weakness and in the humility of the gospel. Which brings us finally to the rebel's end. The rebel's end. Look in chapter 18, verse 6. Chapter 18, verse 6. The armies have gathered. The battle lines have been drawn. And here's what happens. The army of David marched into the field to fight Israel. And the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There, the army of Israel was defeated by David's men, and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest claimed more lives that day than the sword. And that is all, really, that we're told about this decisive battle, this, this civil war between David and Absalom and their respective troops a battle that David wins that puts him back on the throne. You see, as it turns out, the passage isn't really all that concerned with the battle. The scriptures are concerned with the fate of two men, 
Absalom and David. Most of chapter 18 actually focuses on Absalom's end. So look there in verse 9. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's head was caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair, while the mule he was riding kept on going. When one of the men saw this, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man who had told him this, What? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have to have given you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, Even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lift my hand against the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I had put my life in jeopardy, and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. The entire account of Absalom's death is filled with irony. The handsome rebel caught by his handsome head, uh, perhaps even his hair. His his royal mule, because you see, only kings and the sons of kings rode mules. His royal mule has left him dethroned, dangling, literally, the text says, between heaven and earth. More to the point, the author uses a word that is used only once in the Torah to describe Absalom's plight. In, In Deuteronomy 21, To be hung on a tree is to be under God's curse. As the text makes very clear here, not David, but Absalom is the cursed man hanging on the tree. If we went on and read verses 16 and following, we learn of the monuments that were raised to Absalom. And what we find is that His true monument is not the one that he erected to himself outside of Jerusalem. No, his true monument is this heap of stones piled over him in the forest of Ephraim. Uh, An act in scripture reserved for pagan kings. In the end, Absalom received the judgment he deserved. He had earned God's curse. And God was faithful. God was faithful to deliver it. Here in Absalom's end is the end of all rebellion, all unrepentant rebellion against God and against his true king, Jesus Christ. This is the end to die under God's curse, to be buried outside the promised land without hope of eternal life, to be forever under God's judgment. This is what rebellion deserves. And this is what rebellion will always get. God will bring all rebellion to an end. He is committed to it. But friends, he is so committed to it that the death that Absalom, son of David, died is also the death that Jesus, son of David, died. Suspended. 
between heaven and earth, hung on a tree, executed as a rebel under the curse of God. This is the death that Jesus died, the cursed rebel's death. Only the rebellion wasn't his, and neither was the curse. It was mine. It was yours. It's ours. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ bore the curse for us. That Jesus Christ suffered the rebel's death for us. So that whoever turns and puts their faith in the judgment that God accomplished in Christ on the cross need not die a rebel's death. But instead may live. Live with Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. Jesus' death was like Absalom's, but friends, the monument is not at all the same. The monument to Jesus' death is an empty tomb. The monument to Jesus' death is actually the new life of Christians that you see all around you. Those who have trusted in God's judgment in Christ, that that judgment has been satisfied. And so that life has come. Friends, this is how our passage ends. Not in death, but in renewed life. Because you see, there is one more rebel in this passage, and his name is David. What was David's rebellion? Well, it's, it's back there in, in verse 5 of chapter 18. We just heard the young man refer to it. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. Can you imagine how awful that is? What, what they're hearing, even as he sends his own men out to fight for him and die for him, David is still controlled by, by misguided pity, by a sentimental love that would spare his wicked son, even at the expense of his own faithful men's lives. And friends, I think in the entire narrative of David's sin, this might be the worst of all. Now, at the end of chapter 18, David is waiting for news. What's happened? When it finally comes, it's it's not what he wanted to hear. Look in verse 21 of chapter 18. Then Joab said to a Cushite, go tell the king what you've seen. The Cushite bowed down before Joab and ran off. Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, again said to Joab, come what may, please let me run behind the Cushite. Joab replied, my son, why do you want to go? You don't have any news that will bring you a reward. He said, come what may, I want to run. So Joab said, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by way of the plain and outran the Cushite. While David was sitting between the inner and outer gates, the watchman went up to the roof of the gateway by the wall. And as he looked out, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out to the king and reported it. The king said, if he's alone, he must have good news. And the man came closer and closer. And then the watchman saw another man running. And he called down to the gatekeeper, look, another man running alone. The king said, he must be bringing good news too. The watchman said, it seems to me that the first one runs like Ahamaz, son of Zadok. He's a good man, the king said. He comes with good news. Then Ahamaz called out to the king, all is well. 
He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, Praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up the men who lifted their hands against my lord the king. The king asked, Is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimaaz answered, I saw great confusion just as Joab was about to send the king's servant and me, your, your servant, but I don't know what it was. The king said, Stand aside and wait here. So he stepped aside and stood there. Then the Cushite arrived and said, my lord, the king, hear the good news. The Lord has delivered you today from all who rose up against you. And the king asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? And the Cushite replied, may the enemies of my lord, the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. We can understand the father's grief. But we cannot excuse the king's abdication. Joab understood the score. And in the first seven verses of chapter 19, Joab basically shows up and reads the riot act to King David. He confronts him, he rebukes him, and he warns him that unless he repents, greater disaster is coming. Chapter 19, verse 7. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come upon you from your youth until now. And so that's what David does. He repents. Verse 8. So the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. And when the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. You see, the death of Absalom was not just judgment for Absalom's rebellion. It was the final judgment for David's rebellion against the Lord. This entire mess that we've been going through for the last three weeks, going all the way back to chapter 11, was because David had abdicated his responsibilities as king. Nathan had said... That though David would not die, his son would die. David pleaded for the life of his infant son in chapter 12. And the infant son died. But oh, as it worked its way out, what we've seen is he would not be the only son who would die. First Amnon, his firstborn, and now Absalom, next in line to the throne, had died in David's place. His cry, if only I had died instead of you, was the cry of a guilty conscience. David knew that he was the one who deserved to die. That he was the one who had started it all. More than sorrow was needed. What was needed was repentance. A repentance that reached past that initial sorrow over the consequences of sin all the way back to the original sin. And friends, that's what David finally comes to. You see, our our passage opened with an empty city gate and no king sitting there to give judgment. It ends, finally, with David where he should be. The king, in the city gate, putting aside his fatherly grief, actually taking God's side against his own side. And congratulating 
and thanking his men for executing the rebel, his son. Friends, here's repentance. I don't know what you thought repentance was. Maybe, maybe you thought repentance is saying, I'm sorry. I'll try not to do it again. But friends, this is repentance. Not mere grief, not mere remorse, but change. Turning away from rebellion and turning to God in obedience. Make no mistake, repentance hurts. Repentance requires denying yourself, dying to yourself, which means that repentance is only learned here in the trials, in the suffering, and the humiliation of exile. But friends, it is the way to life, and it is the gift of God. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. God delights when rebels turn to him. When they change sides against the world and against themselves and to God. And so hear him say at that moment, not, I told you so, what took so long. But hear him say, welcome back. Friend, whose side are you on this morning? The side of your own success and glory? Or the side of God? As it's held out to you in the weakness, the humiliation of the cross. Which calls you to die to yourself and so find life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Lord Jesus, some of us are sitting here this morning and we don't think of ourselves as rebels. Pray that you would give us a true sight of our own hearts. Others of us are here this morning and we know we're rebels and we cannot believe that you would forgive us. Give us a true sight of the cross and help us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is more grace in Christ than sin in us. And though it involved great humiliation and shame to confess our sin and our brokenness, nevertheless, it is worth it knowing that in the end there will be no shame in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.